Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 112, The Last Great Augustus. Before we start, a couple of things. Firstly, my apologies for the delay in the schedule. Hopefully we'll be back to normal from now on. And second, my huge thanks once again to Elias Belhadad for his quite excellent delivery of the last chapter. So, on we go. In 627, the Emperor Heraclius was on the brink of his final victory over the Persians. He had forced his way deep into Persian territory. When he arrived, the last Persian army was waiting for him, led by their last general, a man called Razates. The armies met at the Battle of Nineveh, and the killing raged for 11 hours. At the height of the fighting, Razates challenged the Emperor to single combat. Now, this was clearly a silly idea. Getting killed after all that success would be foolish in the extreme. Heraclius, being Heraclius, agreed without hesitating. It is said that he mounted his horse, charged in, and cut off the general's head with one blow. Just for good measure, he did the same to two more Persian leaders and then returned to the battle. As the sun set, the Romans realised they didn't have any enemies left to kill. They had won yet another great victory. Heraclius and his army marched into Tisiphon and carried out a really brutal sack. Everything was taken, treasure, money, jewels, statues and anything else that wasn't nailed down. Cosros II was soon overthrown by his own people. His empire had been almost completely destroyed. Less than 20 years later, it would be completely destroyed, but not by Heraclius. The Persian people flung their deposed king into a pit, where he was allowed to live for a while whilst he was forced to watch his children being executed. The new king, Shah Baraz, was an ally of the emperor and signed a peace treaty. The defeated Persians returned to the empire the true cross and the other relics they had stolen from Jerusalem. Heraclius returned to Constantinople and entered the city through the Golden Gate, something only emperors were allowed to do. The true cross was carried in front of him. A huge triumph was held and Heraclius was given the title Scipio, after one of the greatest generals of the Roman Republic. Nobody realised that pretty soon there would be nothing left to celebrate, but for the moment the citizens of the empire were joyous. A few years later, Heraclius walked barefoot into Jerusalem carrying the true cross and returned it to its rightful place. He was a hero to his people. So, why do we call Heraclius the last great Augustus? Were there no more great emperors? Well, yes there were. No one would deny that men like the two Basils, Nicephorus Phocus and John Simiskes, Alexius and John Comnenus and Constantine Dragases, and a few others were heroic and great, but they were not Roman in the same way that previous great emperors had been. Heraclius was the last man to be proclaimed Imperator Augustus. He styled himself Basileus, the Greek word for king. All future emperors would carry this honour instead of the previous traditional imperial titles. Greek was now the official language and the culture of the empire was Greek. This would be so for the rest of its existence. Heraclius, the last great Augustus, had achieved everything he set out to achieve. The people loved him. The entire population of the empire knew that he was a great leader. Heraclius, though, looked old. The constant warfare had taken its toll on him and his blonde hair was gone, replaced by just a few grey strands. The emperor and his empire needed peace, rest and time to recover and rebuild. Sadly, the empire would not get peace, rest or time. The emperor, after his victories, doubled where he shouldn't have. 
No previous emperor had ever come out on top when he tried to get involved in the machinations of Christianity. Heraclius decided that he could solve the monophysite problem once and for all. The Patriarch of Constantinople, Sergius, had come up with a quite clever compromise. God the Father and Jesus, he said, were not of the same substance, but had a single energy or will. This new idea was called monothelitism. Both Heraclius and Sergius hoped that this new compromise would be okay with the monophysites and with their staunch opponents. It was, in fact, accepted by four of the five patriarchs, those of Rome, Constantinople, Antioch and Alexandria, and it seemed that Heraclius had managed to win the religious argument as well as the war with Persia. Unfortunately, the fifth patriarch, the newly appointed patriarch of Jerusalem, didn't agree, and Heraclius's solution fell apart. And then everything else fell apart. Muhammad died of a fever in 632, but the new religion had taken hold and the armies of Islam streamed out of Arabia with unstoppable energy. Hungry for conquest, they stormed into Persian territory. Persia had been so badly weakened by its defeat by Heraclius that it was able to put up very little resistance. The king appealed to his former enemy for help, but Heraclius's army had been badly weakened too. The emperor declined. The Persian king then appealed to China, but help from the east was no more forthcoming than that from the west. Within a few years his empire had been completely defeated and his land subsumed into the growing territory of Islam. The poor king was eventually killed by one of his former subjects for the few coins he had left on his person. The Arabs had destroyed the Persian Empire completely and then scorched into imperial territory. They sacked Damascus and Damasa and took most of the rest of Syria and Palestine. The locals, monophysites to a man, to a certain extent welcomed their invaders. The Arabs began to lay siege to Jerusalem. Heraclius, who was by now quite ill, rushed to Jerusalem and rescued the true cross before it was too late and then sent an army to deal with these new invaders. The Arabs withdrew from Damascus to the banks of the Yarmouk River and waited for the imperial troops to arrive. When they did, the Arab forces gave them a good spanking. It said that an army of 80,000 men was destroyed, massacred almost to a man. Jerusalem held out for a year or so, but by the middle of 638 it was in Arab hands. Caliph Omar, the leader of the Arabs, rode into Jerusalem to take the victory himself. For Heraclius it was all too much. His mind was going. When he got back to the shore opposite Constantinople, he developed a terrible fear of water and refused to cross. Eventually a bridge of ships had to be built, and soldiers lined the decks holding branches, so it looked like there were two giant hedges. The emperor was persuaded to ride between the two hedges to the safety of the capital. Heraclius's popularity began to decline, although a lot of this was blamed on his wife. His marriage to his niece was incestuous, tattled the people. It was clear that no good could come of it. Soon Martina forced her husband to crown her son as junior emperor, along with Heraclius's elder son from his first marriage, who had been crowned a few years earlier. Heraclius was too weak and ill to resist, and his two sons, Constantine and Heraclonus, were designated his heirs. Heraclius died on the 11th of February 641. He had brilliantly led the empire for 31 years, taking it from the depths of the reign of Phocus to the glory of the defeat of Persia. He probably lived a little bit too long, because he knew as he lay dying that his empire was being swallowed up by the Muslim hordes. When he finally expired he was 65 years old, but he looked much older. He was buried in the Church of the Holy Apostles, next to Constantine the Great.
Constantine III and Heraclonus were jointly given the new title of Basileus, but Martina made it absolutely clear that she was really in charge. Constantine had shown great bravery during the siege of Constantinople, but had since become quite ill. After a short time on the throne, he travelled across the Bosphorus to Chalcedon, maybe for a change of scene and maybe to get away from his stepmother. Pretty soon his illness got worse and he died having reigned just four months. He was 29 years old. There has been speculation that Martina played the role of Robert Graves' Livia and poisoned her stepson. While this is certainly possible, there is no proof. In fact, there's no real evidence of any sort. Constantine III's son, Heraclius, was left at the palace after his father's death. He was soon raised to co-emperor with Heraclonus, much to the annoyance of Martina. He was given the name Constans II. In September, the Senate, who had been growing more powerful since the days of Justinian, decided they just couldn't put up with Martina any longer. Heraclonus was only a teenager and Constans just eleven, and she was wielding real power. As soon as Constantine III died, she had fired all of the most important ministers. The Senate had had enough, in fact more than enough. They grabbed Martina and Heraclonus. Heraclonus had his nose split, effectively it was cut off, because it was thought that an emperor could not be an emperor if he had a slit nose. Heraclonus and Martina were exiled to the island of Rhodes. Heraclonus had reigned for just seven months. It's thought he died later in the year, aged just 15. Well, we've only got about halfway through this chapter, and we've already said goodbye to three emperors. The next one, though, would last a bit longer. Constans II was only 11 when he became emperor, and the Senate acted as his regent. He was a strong-minded child, though, and by the time he was 16, he was ruling by himself. He married Fausta while he was still very young. But the rest of this chapter is not just about Constans II. It's about the Muslims and their unstoppable invasions. Although the empire did not yet know it, they had lost Syria and Palestine, including Damascus and Jerusalem, forever. Never again would they be in imperial hands. Never again would Jerusalem be a Christian city, except briefly during the Crusades hundreds of years later. For the people, though, it wasn't a disaster. The Muslims were extremely tolerant of other religions, and were careful not to upset Christians or Jews by persecutions or taking over of religious buildings. The Christians of Antioch and Jerusalem saw the Muslims as being very similar to them. The Islamic teachings were not, they decided, too different from monophysitism, and most Eastern Christians were monophysites. The new rulers were very fair and just, and there didn't seem to be any need to rebel. By 646, Alexandria and the rest of Egypt were also gone for good. The leader of the Arabs was known as the Caliph, and the Caliph of that time, a man called Uthman, ordered the walls of Alexandria be knocked down and never rebuilt. The capital of the province was moved to the small town of Fustat, which was given a new name, a name it still has today. Today, Fustat is the largest city on the continent of Africa, and is called Cairo. In just 15 years, the whole of the Persian Empire and half of the Eastern Roman Empire had fallen to the Muslims. The Arab forces were unlike any enemy that either empire had encountered before. They fought for each other and for Allah. They fought hard and they fought to the death. In all this time, they almost never lost a single battle. The Roman Empire had lost control of three of the five most important Christian cities. Antioch, Jerusalem and Alexandria were gone. Only Rome and Constantinople were still in imperial territory. Next, the Arabs, who had never taken to the sea before, began to build ships. They built lots and lots of them. Soon, under the leadership of a general called Muawiyah, 
they had taken the island of Rhodes and its neighbour, Kos. Constans at last decided to act. He sent the Imperial Navy to destroy the Arab fleet. He led the attack himself, confident that his experienced sailors would easily defeat these Muslims who had only just started sailing. The fleets came together for a violent and bloody sea battle known as the Battle of the Masts. This was the first sea battle between the Empire and the Muslims in a long line of them, a line which would go on for nearly a thousand years. Constans knew he couldn't lose this one. The Muslims may have been great soldiers, but they weren't sailors. Constans was wrong. Constans was very wrong. He was about as wrong as wrong gets. The Imperial Navy was completely shattered. Constans himself only escaped by changing clothes with one of his men, and that man was soon killed in the fighting. It seemed as if the Empire was doomed. Half of it had gone in just a few years, and there appeared to be no hope for the other half. It would take a stroke of luck just to hold the Muslim army at bay for a few years. And, just in time, the Empire got its stroke of luck. The Caliph Uthman was assassinated in his home in Medina. The killing led to the first ever civil war in the world of Islam. A new Caliph, Ali, was proclaimed. Some Muslims thought that Ali had been designated by Muhammad himself as his successor, and therefore Uthman was a usurper, and so the killing was fair enough. Others, including the general Muawiyah, didn't agree. Once Ali had become caliph, he struggled to be accepted as the leader throughout the Muslim world. Muawiyah was a relative of the murdered Uthman, and wanted the murderers brought to justice. Ali was unwilling to do this, and so Muawiyah rebelled against him. Ali attempted to put down the rebellion. The result was the Battle of Sifin. However, the battle was indecisive and the two parties agreed to talk, but the talk was just as indecisive. The battle and talks weakened Ali, but did not resolve anything, and in 661 Ali was assassinated and Muawiyah became the sole caliph. The two sides never really agreed. To this day, one group of Muslims think that Ali was the designated successor and are called Shia, or followers of Ali. The others who don't agree and just see Ali as one of the first caliphs are called the Sunni. Constans had his own religious disputes to deal with. He decided to issue an edict saying the monothelite controversy was not to be discussed. Anyone talking about anything to do with the will or energy of Christ was in big, big trouble. This eventually led to Constans arresting the Pope, Martin, sending him to Constantinople and throwing him in prison. As you can see, Constans II was no more successful in keeping the Christian church in order than were any emperors who came before him. He was also not very good at keeping his own family in order. He came under pressure from the Senate to name his brother Theodosius co-emperor. Constans was not one to share things, and he certainly had no intention of sharing power, so he sent his little brother to be a priest. Soon he became worried that Theodosius might rebel against him, so he had his little brother killed. The emperor realised he was having no luck in the east, so he decided to make sure he could keep hold of his western provinces. First he stomped into the Balkans and moved a load of Slavs to Asia Minor to be resettled. Then he made a very strange decision. He decided the future was in the west, not the east, and he would move his capital to Sicily. His grandfather Heraclius had threatened to leave and the people had begged him to stay. The same was not true of Constans. He was nowhere near as popular and the people let him go. Brother killers are never too popular with the people. On the way, Constans went to Rome. He was the first emperor to set foot in the ancient capital for 200 years. He was received by the Pope Vitalian with great honours, even though he had had the previous Pope chucked into jail. 
He spent 12 days visiting all the sites and many churches and the people were happy to see their emperor. The people of Rome, though, were soon pretty glad to see the back of him. They weren't too chuffed when he stripped all the ancient buildings of their ornaments and bronze and had the whole lot shipped back to Constantinople. In the autumn, Constance II crossed over to Sicily, where he had decided to base himself. He managed to make himself very unpopular there too. He raised taxes to very high levels, and when that didn't bring in enough cash, he started selling people into slavery. Constance II was clearly not capable of following in his illustrious grandfather's footsteps. It wouldn't be long before somebody decided that he had to go. Next time, we'll find out what happens when someone decides he has to go. And also about the invention of a new weapon, which would keep the empire viable for hundreds of years. So, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.